Welcome back to another episode of Launch AMA, where we ask startup experts about anything and everything. I'm your host as usual, Sam, the VP of Programs here at Launch Academy. So today we're joined by someone who who I consider to be one of the mentors of, of the Vancouver tech industry. Um, but a lot of you guys haven't heard from him yet. Um, his name is Jason Bailey. He's a serial entrepreneur, angel investor, um, and so many other things. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Awesome. And I mean, I, I was just reading LinkedIn, you know, doing my due diligence, trying to, trying to do some research to look prepared for this. Um, but I'm just going to read the first line of your LinkedIn. It says, Jason Bailey is the poster child for ADHD. After being kicked out of several schools and fired from numerous jobs, he was forced to become an entrepreneur. Success followed in spurts, the largest of which was Super Rewards, the monetization platform that powered social games and made virtual goods a viable business model. Um, so we're, we're a couple years removed from I've, Super Wars now, but <laughs> we are. And now I've been able to uh, beat that high score that we got with Super Rewards back in the day with Eastside Games, which is a uh, mobile game uh, studio based out of here in Vancouver. We're 100 odd people. Um, we have a series of uh, successful mobile games. Um, we do uh, our own IPs like uh, Pop Farm and Bud Farm, but we also work with major brands in Hollywood like, uh, you know, Disney and Sony and, uh, and the like. And so we have uh, a game for the Trailer Park Boys. We have a game that we do for It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. We're about to launch a game for Archer. Uh, we just launched a game for the Goldbergs uh, and, and some other ones in the, in the hopper that are coming soon. I mean, this, this is amazing. And I, I'm definitely going to come back to, to Eastside Games and, and, you know, all the things that you guys are doing now. And, and maybe we, we want to touch a little bit into the gaming industry in, in Vancouver in general. But I, I'm going to drive us way back and just, just, you know, so people get a little bit more taste of your, your entrepreneurial journey. Like, could you kind of explain how you were, quote unquote, forced to become an entrepreneur and just what that, what that process was like? Well, I'm otherwise unemployable. Uh, you should never hire me. I'm not a good employee. I am always trying to find a shortcut. I'm always trying to find the lazy way to do something. I'm always, I would always be prefer, you know, I always prefer to be working on whatever is new and shiny and fun and exciting and creative. I'm not good at sitting down and shutting up and following the rules. And so, um, you know, that's great as an entrepreneur and that's great as a leader, but uh, it's not always what you want from your frontline employees. And so, um, you know, I can't walk into an ice cream shop without standing around and thinking to myself, fuck, if I ran this place, I could sell so much more ice cream than these guys. Like, <laughs> like why is the fridge over there? And why do they have their lineup like this? Like, like if they really, like they should really move this over here and they would sling way more ice cream. And I have a really hard time keeping my mouth shut and we'll often uh, bring it up. No, it's, that's, that's hilarious. And so like, when did you actually know, or, or in your mind, you're like, I, I got to do my own thing? Well, I always, so I grew up in a trailer park in a shitty part of town, moved around a lot, um, you know, parents that were struggling. And uh, I always had a scheme or a dream so that I could get some money together. And I just wanted to get the hell away from it all as much as I could. And so, um, you know, part of that is being, you know, we're Canadians, but it's that American dream of, of making it big someday. So I always had some scheme or dream or scam that I was working on, even even as a child, whether I was like, you know, selling firecrackers in the schoolyard, 
or uh, you know, coming up with some sideways way to make money on the side. And uh, so I think that entrepreneurial spirit has always been deep inside of me as a, a path out of where I was. Did you ever sell any lemonade or something? Uh, yeah, no, 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 no. I'd be the guy that would be setting up the other kids to sell lemonade. You know, I'd be <laughs> them with like some sort of cheap lemonade product. My, my, it was never about how much money I can make today, but I was always thinking about how we could scale this, you know, how mm. could I take this, this, uh, you know, this skill I had, let's say, you know, even at like 12 years old, I remember, you know, like painting models and thinking to myself, like, how can I scale this out and like sell this service to other kids and get a bunch of people uh, painting models with me and providing the service. So it's like, that was, you know, which of course made no sense. And believe me, of the first hundred businesses that I start, I, I tried to start, 99 of them were fucking terrible ideas. And I would not absolutely unquestionably not scale. Uh, it took me a, a long time to hone my craft to where we are today. Um, but I always, I always was thinking about, you know, how am I going to scale this up? How can I, how can I turn this 10 bucks into a million bucks? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was really that kind of that challenge that seems to keep driving you, right? Absolutely. Cause even, you know, I always thought that, oh, I'm going to, you know, if I can turn this 10 bucks into a million bucks, then I'm going to go sit on a beach and retire and do whatever the hell I want. And life is going to be grand. Well, I passed that milestone uh, a long, long time ago. And I'm, well, to be fair, I am sitting at a waterfront house with a beach in front of me, but uh, uh, I'm not uh, sitting on the beach enjoying the sunshine. That's for sure. I kind of thought you'd be fixing the beach. Uh, well, I definitely look at the beach and I've definitely done some improvements to how it all comes together. <laughs> the house that we're in is definitely not the house that was on this piece of property when we bought it. Uh, no. you know, we, we've, we've made those improvements. Uh, but I, I, you know, sitting still isn't what I do best. And so as you can imagine through this, uh, pandemic, um, you know, I've had my, my mental health struggles and, you know, to be honest and to clear, it's not, uh, you know, I call myself the poster child for ADHD, but you know, I'm also a little bit bipolar. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I struggle with various mental health issues and, and I get depressed and I struggle with shit just like everybody else does. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, there isn't a, don't take on a fantasy that everything's grand in my world. And the, the desire to get to the top is something that's insatiable. You know, mm -hmm. I think that, uh, like with super rewards is a great example. I mean, that's a company that we built and went from zero to a hundred million dollar run rate and sold it for an absurd amount of money all in 18 months. Um, and now ever since I did that, my core goal has been to do it again, only even bigger. Like how do I beat my high score? And so even with these like, games, you know, I beat my high score and, and doing really well. And now, you know, I'm not happy. I, 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 now I need to figure out how can we take this to the next level? How do I turn Eastside Games into a billion dollar company? Mm -hmm. it, it's a disease. <laughs> it's, it's very, it's, it's very much, I'm just thinking about you playing Pac-Man as a kid um, and just, yeah. just going, you know, top score after top score. Um, but let's, I let's. The, uh, I was the ColecoVision champion of British Columbia in 1983. Oh, wow. There's yeah. something that you're only going to hear here. Yeah. Um, but let's, let's just dive a little bit deeper into like, what, what was super rewards back in the day and what, what was it supposed to be? So, <laughs> Super Rewards is one of those things that kind of came out of a vague idea 
Uh, it's not something that, you know, we kind of sat down and planned out and said, this is, this is what we're going to build. And then in, in six months, we're going to be here. And in two years, we're going to be there. It was literally, um, you know, an idea that me and my buddy Eugene were working out of a little office that we had after having been fired from a job and uh, were kind of just running these affiliate program stuff and online advertising and marketing stuff on the internet and, and you know, Facebook and MySpace were just young at that time. And, um, you know, we we're trying to figure out how to make, make a few bucks on all this stuff. And we were doing okay. You know, we were putting money in our pocket. And then uh, Facebook launched its, uh, um, what they called at that time, their apps program that allowed anybody to come in and effectively build a business on Facebook's platform. So if you want to do uh, tools and things like that to uh, help students or calendars, and, and of course, you know, Zook being the um, robot that he is, he thought it would be people making tools and helpful things, but uh, we had better ideas and that was to make games and fun stuff mm -hmm. and so you know we were amongst the very first people to have a game on Facebook and back then this is 2009 um, there was no I guess 2008 really I mean uh, yeah 2000 late 2007 because uh, we sold it in 2009 so yeah it would have been late 2007 and uh, uh, so we threw together this little system that allowed you to get um, bonuses in the game by interacting with ads. So if you're familiar with mobile games now where you, you know, you watch an ad to get uh, extra virtual currency uh, mm -hmm. in a game, which is a very common mechanic in just about every free to play game that you see out there now. Um, we literally invented that in 2007. And, uh, and then from there we thought, we just had that system that we'd built for our own games. And then, you know, I reached out to a buddy of ours uh, in, in Victoria who was also building games on the platform and told him about it and said, hey, you should do this. And they did. And, of course, did a, a half-assed job at it. And so we said, uh, uh, you know what? Why don't we just clean up the code that we built and you can use it and we'll take a commission on it and on and on that went. And that was in, you know, November of 2007. Uh, and then, so we did that and then we, you know, kind of put some lipstick on the pig and pushed it out into the market and, uh, called a bunch of other people. And by Christmas time, we were making about $10,000 a day, uh, wow. on the, through the platform. And it's like, Hey, this is pretty cool. And then by February, it was doing a hundred thousand dollars a day. And then of course there was a little company that you probably heard of called Zynga that uh came to us and we went to them and and we helped them uh figure out this virtual currency model and and within a relatively short amount of time zynga was making a hundred million dollars and we were writing a majority of those checks uh and then wow. the that that whole model took off and now back then you know we were talking to the eas and the activision and all the big boys in the world to get them to do it and we're literally regularly laughed out of the room of you know this whole virtual currency thing will never take off uh free-to-play games are a fad they'll never work you know they'll never make the kind of money that uh you know our magic little cds that we put inside of a box and shit <laughs> in retail stores in malls do um and uh but we kept pushing kept pushing kept pushing and then i sold that company but continued to work there for a while as we allowed it to get established and um you know here we are 10 years later and it's a 
I don't even remember, a $40 billion industry of free-to-play games on it. <laughs> Imagine uh, so if EA had taken you up on that it. offer. <laughs> yeah. I, we didn't invent it by any means. It was a lot of people that we collaborated with that everybody mm-hmm. kind of put their plus one onto it, plus one onto it, plus one onto it. Um, that, but we definitely built the first uh, monetization platform, the first system that allowed uh, game developers to easily um, build monetizable games uh, and which ultimately grew into what we have today. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, I'd love to spend, I'd probably spend hours just talking about that alone. Um, but, you know, specifically for, for our entrepreneurs, like I think what their main interest is like, so you, you, I mean, you were going from, you know, a couple hundred bucks a day, maybe to, to 10,000 to a hundred thousand a day. Like what, what was the team like? Like how, how do, how were you guys able to scale up? And, and, you know, nowadays we talk a lot about like building company culture, you know, ramping up staff and, and so on and so forth. Like, how did you grow that aspect of, of the business? Uh, I mean, at the time when we started, we were, you know, three or four people, kind of me, my buddy who is it. So, so I'm a kind of advertising marketing, uh, you know, finance guy. Uh, my buddy was a brilliant engineer. And, uh, so the two of us made a great team of, of anything I could cook up and believe me, I can cook shit up he could build it and build it fast. So he wasn't one of these engineers that will build you a long-term scalable, robust platform that does everything you can imagine and takes six months to do it. He's the kind of guy that I'd have some random idea and like, hey, you, what if it did this, this, and this? And he, the next afternoon, he'd be like, boom, there you go, bud. It does it. And, and, uh, and then plus one it while he was at it. Um, so it wouldn't be something necessarily that was like, like, you know, scalable and robust and like the greatest code ever. Like literally our servers were on fire and smoking and we couldn't back up our databases because we couldn't stop the servers long enough to do it. So every morning I'd wake up with my fingers crossed and hope that it was all still there. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, he was able to move fast and do things quickly. And then once we were successful, I hired some uh, and actually acquired and, and, uh, some guys in San Francisco who are like MIT, Stanford engineers who are absolutely fucking brilliant. And those are the guys that, that saved our day and, and built that platform. And, and, and even on, on that note, you know, so those guys came along with us. Um, I learned a ton from them. They learned a ton from me. We all learned a ton from our experience together. And then those guys went off and started their own company um, you know, using that money that they, they made from super rewards. And, uh, I didn't see the price tag, but a couple weeks ago, they just built their comp, sold their company cross install to Twitter for what I can only imagine is a hundred million dollars plus. Oh, wow. Yeah. Success stories are around. Yeah, for sure. And then a lot of the people coming out of it. I mean, that's, that's, you know, you surround yourself with people who are smarter than you and people who are better at what you do. And so in the beginning days, I did it all, right? You know, I was the sales guy. I was the finance guy. I was the ideas guy. I was the, the um, you know, I was the guy in there creating our analytics reports. I was the guy that was, you know, doing customer support. I, you know, I, I did it all because I had to. It had to be done. And then eventually you, you take each of those things off of your plate by finding somebody who's smarter and better at it than you. And that's how you build the company of just kind of one piece at a time, better and better and better and better people. Uh, and now, you know, East Eastside Games is a great example of that. If, you know, 
um, between us and all of our partners, we're probably about 150 people, but I have a team of directors around me of eight or 10 people who, who just know their niche so incredibly well. And, uh, um, you know, are, are immensely smarter than me when it comes to their particular expertise. Mm-hmm. And so kind of driving from Super Rewards into Eastside Games, like what did, what were the main takeaways? And I know you touched on it a little bit already from Super Rewards that you took into your experience with, with Eastside Games. So, I mean, a major one that's relevant to your, your crew is, um, you know, how we finance the business. So both Super Rewards and Eastside Games are 100% bootstrapped. We, um, you know, the whole idea of like, oh, we're going to go out and raise $3 million or $5 million or even $500,000 to go and get this business started um, is a perfectly reasonable, proven business model that, that I would never fucking do mm-hmm. because you are, are bringing in a whole world of hurt and crap from venture capitalists. Um, you know, angel investors are fun. I have a lot of friends who are venture capitalists, but they have one goal and that is make money for their limited partners. And I am a limited partner in, a, in plenty of different uh, VC funds. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I appreciate them watching out for my money, but uh, um, you know, they're not the, the, the dream that they sell you that they're going to help you build your business and give you all of this network and do all of these things. Like, yes, yeah, some of that's true as long as you're doing well. But uh, when shit goes a little bit sideways, they have, you know, 127 other companies that they're also watching over. Uh, and, 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 you know, the favor is going to go there and it's going to limit your ability to uh, move fast and break things and pivot on a dime. And so luckily with both Super Rewards and Eastside Games, you know, we, we've had to do plenty of pivots over the years. We have, uh, uh, you know, kind of redone our entire business model and it's been the ability to do that was because, you know, we had all of the control. We didn't need a board of directors permission or sign off. Uh, We could take the risk we wanted to take and take the company in the direction that we did. And that's why we were successful. Um, But, you know, I understand that some companies can't be built without uh, venture capital, but, you know, a lot of people, especially in and around Silicon Valley, will look at that round you raised as a sort of a badge of honor. Like if you didn't raise a round from VCs, you're somehow not a legitimate business. And believe me, in the early days of Super Rewards, our major competitor was a VC-backed business. And uh, um, everybody was like, oh, no, those guys must be better because this and this, you know, essentially that they've been validated by these VCs. And um, it's it's complete horseshit. Uh, If you can do this on your own, that is the painful way to do it today but it's the way where you're going to have the most reward and the most opportunity uh, later on down the road. As an example, with Super Rewards, um, you know, when we sold it, uh, a lot of people gave us shit for selling it for too little. You know, that, oh, this company should have been worth so much more. And, you know, you're a bad example to entrepreneurs by, uh, you know, selling out so easily. 
And, uh, you know, you should have, you should have built it into a billion dollar company or a unicorn or, or, you know, cause like, as you see the, you know, the company, the, the, the industry has turned into a 40, $50 billion industry. Um, you know, it was just getting started. I should have wrote it out. And, uh, had, if we had had VC backers, they would have effectively, and we did talk to many VCs, they would have effectively forced us to, uh, raise a bunch of money, go hard and go deep. And that, unquestionably would have been the wrong thing to do because in hindsight, we can see that um, the, the Kings of the platform, you know, the, the super rewards, though it still kind of exists today. Um, the, the apples and the Googles and the Facebooks of the world took over that business and forced us out of it. You know, Facebook literally created a system that was an exact copy of ours uh, and, and, made that system mandatory and exclusive to all of the people on that platform and effectively destroyed the entire business. Um, this was after uh, long after I'd sold it, but, but, you know, had I been forced to take that ride all the way to the moon, uh, it would have been a ride into the dirt. So, you know, I knew that getting out was good and it was, you know, we had a lot of big risks, that we were looking at. One was that Facebook could come along and take over our business. The other was that Zynga was 50% of our business at that time. And they were a major pain in the ass to work with and could have quit <laughs> us in any minute. And within six months of us selling it, they did actually quit us. And within a year of uh, um, us selling it, Facebook announced that they were going to be launching their own platform. So uh, we made the right call, but had we had institutional investors, they would have forced us to go because we would have been the unicorn in their portfolio. We would have been the one that's going to get them the 10 X return on their money. And then they wouldn't have let us exit unless they got that return. Mm -hmm. So then for companies that are kind of trying to make that, that hard choice, because like you, you kind of highlighted, it's, it's not, it's not simple, right? Like, like, you know, we're, we're talking in hindsight now and yeah, it was the right decision to just stay bootstrapped and, and sell and, and et cetera. But mm -hmm. obviously at the time, like these were, these were real, like, you know, decisions that you were struggling with. So, so for, for people today, like, like I, I'll, I'll try and paint like a, a, a fake example, right? Like, you know, you, you've made some revenue, you, you look at maybe some of your competitors, they're, they're more heavily backed. Um, they seem to be, you know, rising at a rate that is concerning to you. Um, like where, what, what kind of decision-making process would, would you go through if you were kind of sitting there with, with that kind of scenario? So I do, I do, because, uh, you know, with Eastside Games, you know, we spent the last, uh, we're just over nine years old and, uh, you know, we, we, sure, you know, I have had my own personal success and, you know, help Eastside East Games get started. But, um, you know, we have all of the growth we've done has been organically. So I never hire anybody unless I have the money we're already making the money to pay that person. And I know by hiring that person, they're going to ultimately cover their own salary and add more to the pie so that we can then hire even more people to be able to do that job more effectively. And I expect them to come in and, and especially in the early days when, you know, your first 12, 15 employees, you can't have, Oh, I am uh, um, the fucking is backend engineer and that's all I am. Or I'm the, uh, uh, I'm an account manager and that's all I do. Fuck you. That's not in my company. Like we're only 12, 15 people. Like if the toilet's broken, now you're a plumber or if the, 
the somebody's knocking at the door and there's a package, you're the fucking receptionist. Now get up there and grab that package. Like there is no room in a company that small for specific roles. Or, and if something's on fire, we're all in here doing what we need to do to put this fire out. Um, and so you need to be able, those early hires you make need to be really flexible people who can do anything and are more of the, the jack of all trades of the world. And then as you get bigger, it's like, okay, well, here's Billy and Billy does, you know, this kind of engineering or this kind of sales. And so this is the kind of sales Billy's is be- Billy is best at. So if we can hire somebody to just going to do the, you know, customer support or the onboarding or the, you know, report generation or whatever it is that's taking up a bunch of Billy's time that would be better spent having Billy selling to new customers, that's when you hire that person. When there's already enough money coming in to be able to, you know, afford to do that. If you've got a business where, oh, I have to go out and and hire 60, I have to go raise $20 million so I can hire 160 people to, um, you know, do an Uber or a a Just Eat or whatever, where we're just going to like take over a whole market and, and, and lose money for a few years and then we're going to make money. Well, then have at it, bud, but you're talking to the wrong guy. I can't help you. I think that's a stupid idea. I think that's a terrible way to build a business. And yeah, sure. Look, you know, Uber, Lyft, uh, Just Eat, uh, you know, Airbnb. Obviously, these are valuable companies that have, uh, um, you know, created a lot of wealth for uh, the one percenters of the world and, and, and the VCs of the world. They haven't uh, uh, actually made any money ever. Like none of those companies have ever turned a profit. And so in my opinion, those are crappy businesses and they aren't businesses that I would build. And as much as you hear about one or two Ubers or Airbnbs, you don't hear about the thousand other people who tried to follow that same model and failed. Mm -hmm. I come from a school of thought of building a business that actually makes money today. Let's figure out, I don't need to be the guy that's got, well, I'm going to go to every market there is and, you know, sell pizza for 12 cents so that we can take over the pizza market. And then later on, we'll figure out once we're selling 10 billion pizzas a day, how we'll make money selling pizzas. No, 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 no. Let's how we'll figure out how I can make money selling one pizza. And then how do we make two and four and 10 and then a hundred and then have five different pizza shops making all making money. And if this pizza shop is not making money, we're shutting this pizza shop down. And so it's the same thing with what we do now in games. If, if you know, uh, the games industry is full of companies that will happily spend money all day long uh, and they will spend $12 to acquire a new customer that they'll only make $10 from. And they look at it and they say, hey, I spent $2 to make $12. So if I could go out and raise $20 million, then I could spend all of that on user acquisition, make $120 million in revenue. And if I've got a company that's doing $120 million in revenue, then all these VCs in Silicon Valley are going to want to invest in me. I'll have a billion dollar valuation. We'll go public and that's how I'll get rich. How about it, bud? But that's sure as hell not what I do. When I acquire a customer, I try to acquire a customer for $10 and make $12 and then I know I'm making two bucks. And if I can only acquire a thousand customers that way, well, then I made $2,000. Mm-hmm. 
and 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 I'll take the guaranteed two thousand dollars all day long over some pipe dream of dealing with Silicon Valley VCs and and trying to build that billion dollar unicorn. And so that's why here we are, um, you know, nine ten years later, and Eastside Games is doing incredibly well and growing. And I do have a fantasy where I turn this into a billion dollar company, but it's probably going to take another five years. I don't like I I. I I'm just not the kind of person who's going to go out and build a billion dollar company in three years. Mm-hmm. I don't does really part of that come with, with does part of that come with, with just maturity of an entrepreneur and having patience? Part of it. it it's also a different mindset. It, you know, honestly, and I know, you know, your program is about a lot of international people uh, coming from all over the world and coming to Canada. So, you know, Canada is interesting because really we're, we're you know, we're America's hat. And um, America has a very specific way of looking at and doing business. And Canada has a really unique perspective of, you know, being neighbors to this juggernaut who, who do a lot of things right, don't get me wrong. But, you know, we do it with a little bit more humbleness and uh, a little bit more conservatively too. And I think it's a really interesting perspective. And you have people coming from, from whether it's Africa or South Asia or Eastern Europe, and all of those places have a different perspective. And it really opened my eyes. I know the first time I went to India and, and looked around at, you know, for instance, the fruit stands. And, you know, you've got a lineup of 10 fruit stands next to each other. And I think to myself, how can 10 people who are all selling bananas and chips, you know, how can they survive? Like, how, did the, how does this work? And, and, and again, I get my entrepreneur hat out and I'm thinking, how could I be the best banana stand on the block? Um, and, and what I quickly learned in talking to people there is it's a very different perspective. It's not about... Uh, you know, should I clean off the walk and have the only fruit stand with a dirty walk? No, no, no. Cleaning the walk is the job of somebody very specific and that's their role. And if you do that, you're taking it away. And, and, and it's not even, you know, that's just a very, very specific example. But, you know, if you live in Nigeria or you live in South Africa, um, you have a different worldview. And when you come into a market that is well-established and well-ingrained and you do it with a different worldview, you have a massive advantage in that you can see things from a different perspective. And I think that's what's part of what's allowed me to be successful in, you know, because at the end of the day, most of our businesses in the U.S. is seeing how they do it, taking what works, but then coming at it from a slightly different perspective. Um, and I think, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people would look at, oh, you came, you know, you have your business in, in Botswana, that's a disadvantage. But I think, you know, coming here, bringing that same skill set and smarts and experience and, and a different perspective, if you can understand the Canadian and American perspective and hold on to the, you know, Zimbabwean perspective, it's a real advantage. And what do you think is is unique to to the the American or Canadian perspective that that an outsider should look in at least have have an understanding and while you know taking their own unique take on it? Well, I know it's hard for me to say because I'm I'm so ingrained mm-hmm. in it. You know, I grew up in it and I grew up around it, so it's it's so 
um, you know, part of my identity that I, it's hard to extract it. But I do know, you know, when I look at China as a market, for example, and, and it's particularly in games and the Chinese game market is so different than the Canadian game market or the U.S. game market that um, it's hard to even compare the two. They're so different. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the consumer perspectives and the consumer motivations are so different uh, that, that I know I have to have the help of the right people there in order to make the changes to our game in order to be successful in that market. And so as a Canadian, I look at the U.S. market and I'm able to look at, um, you know, people's buying behaviors. And, you know, when we build our games, I know, um, you know, pride and, uh, you know, being a braggart are, uh, important to that um, society, essentially. So, so having things that you can buy where you essentially show off to everybody how great you are and how you're the, the, the first guy to have this or the best guy to have that. Like, these are all big motivators for American culture and, uh, um, you know, bigger, louder, brighter. And so, you know, we tailor our games to that. Whereas in a Canadian market, it's a little bit more uh, cooperative, uh, you know, how can we, you know, you like to compete against your friends, but how can we, uh, uh, build something together is a little bit more of that too. I'm not saying Canadians are that different than than Americans. Like this is an exaggeration of a a point, but, uh, um, you know, under understanding people's cultural differences is, is one of the skills that I, you know, spend a lot of time nurturing. Mm -hmm. And so for, for a lot of companies that are listening on this, like they, they're on route to Vancouver or they, they recently landed in Vancouver for, for maybe a couple months or whatnot. Um, like what are some specific advantages? And, and I, I kind of want to get practical on this because especially, you know, right now everybody's at home and, and we, we boast and we talk about, you know, networking and, you know, I think a lot of, you know, you, you gave a lot of kudos to, to working with people smarter than you meeting with people smarter than you, you know, early on when you built probably, probably all your businesses, like what, what can these companies do to take advantage of, of, you know, exactly where we are today in Vancouver tech and, and how do how do they actually go out and build this, this network? So, I mean, it's, now that the, you know, with, with the, with the, the Rona upon us, uh, things are changing really, really fast. And so that's a really difficult question to answer right now. Three months ago, I could have sat here um, full of confidence and said all kinds of things, but mm-hmm. now um, those things are shifting and we don't know how it's going to play out. Like, like we don't know what off offices are going to look like going forward. We, we know that uh, uh, remote working is going to become very normalized. Like if anything, I'd say being in Botswana is less of a disadvantage than it ever has been in the past because, uh, you know, you, as long as you have access to high-speed internet and, um, you know, speak English well and uh, are willing to deal with the time zone issues, um, you have an advantage and you have the opportunity to work at, at all of these uh, tech companies that you wouldn't have had before. Like before we would have looked at it and said, you definitely need to move to Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And, and there's still advantages to coming to Vancouver. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, societal and, and, and uh, um, you know, um, just, you know, quality of life because Vancouver is a 
spectacular place in the world to live it uh, and and we should all be so lucky to live here uh but but yeah i'm really not sure how it's going to play out over the next few months it's going to be really really curious to watch but what i can tell you is the hubs like um you know san francisco and la and new york that that are are even you know seattle redmond uh the the cost of talent in those places are prohibitive like even Eastside games where we're doing incredibly well and throwing off EBITDA and profitable quarter after quarter for nine years now, if we were based out of San Francisco and we're paying the, um, you know, the, the prices per engineer and, and people that you have to pay in San Francisco, we wouldn't be profitable. Sure. The argument can be made that you'd have better engineers and better this and better that. And so therefore you, you, you might be, but, um, it's really challenging. Whereas in, in Vancouver, you can get great engineers at a reasonable price, not cheap by any means, you know, and especially the prices continue to go up as, you know, the Amazons and Microsofts continue to hunker down. I mean, uh, some of this is, 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 is our fault from, you know, when we started Grow Lab, uh, you know, whatever, 10 years ago. And, and at that time there was very little, uh, a tech community in Vancouver and now it's really, really strong. And we went around the world telling everybody what a great Vancouver place Vancouver is to build a tech company. And so now everybody came to Vancouver and built tech companies and drove the prices up for us all. <laughs> so, so sorry. Uh, but now we have a talent pool in Vancouver that is so deep and so experienced that uh, uh, those things balance each other out. Um, yeah, I mean, but can you set up shop in Kelowna? Can you set up shop in Calgary? Uh, yeah, of course you always could, but, you know, attracting talent was part of that ch- challenge. But now with so many people remote working so successfully, that's changing and shifting. So we got to watch this one play out. I can't answer that question easily. It's, it's, it's changing too fast. No, for sure. And so... Um... I think I'd be hurting myself if I didn't ask you this, but specifically for, for, for gaming itself. Like I think I do. I do, In fact, I know I do. I have companies that, that are currently listening to this that are in our programs that look to Eastside games as, as, as a model of like, I, I want to be there someday, or, or I want to do, you know, this chunk of what Eastside games is doing. Like what advice would you have for, for those companies? Uh, fail fast, fail often and recognize your failures. This is something that we continue to work on and get better at. But, uh, you know, we just canceled one of our games a few weeks ago. Uh, it's, 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 you know, it was not quite meeting all of its KPIs. We put a whole lot of heart and a whole lot of time and a whole lot of love and a whole lot of art and a whole lot of money into building this game. Um, and it's hard to let go of it. But, uh, you know, the decision had to be made to cancel that game and kiss all that money goodbye. I mean, we're lucky to be in a position where, you know, we have plenty of other successful games that are paying the bills. So we could, whereas I see a lot of, you know, young game companies, especially just get so married to their game and, and they're, they're building a game company because they have a great idea for a game. Mm -hmm. And that is a recipe for disaster. Because games change, games evolve. Uh, you can't know what IPs and what storylines, what mechanics will or won't work, uh, you know, in what combinations. Like, like, I've been wrong so many times. More often than I've been right, to be honest. 
And even when I look at games like, like, you know, our trailer park boys games, which is massively successful. And we just launched a, um, a game for Cheech and Chong, you know, about a month and a bit ago through our, our partner leaf. And, uh, I didn't think it was going to do well, you know, Cheech and Chong, it's not 1978 anymore. <laughs> you know, does it, is it going to pass the, the test of time? Is it really that good? Uh, and boom, it came out of the gate strong and hard and, and doing really, really well. So, um, it's hard to predict that. So as a game company, you need to be flexible. You need to be able to pivot hard. And what you really need to do is, is, is keep it simple. Choose a game mechanic, choose a style of game, study the hell out of it. Be sure about work, what works about it. And then, you know, apply whatever plus one you, you can to it. If you have some idea for this great new game that's never been played before that, nobody's ever seen that's going to revolutionize the the uh, game industry i'm not even interested in talking to you mm-hmm. i think you're going to fail for sure no that's that's really pushing hey jason like we're right up against the clock i, I think i might have to bring you back another time just because i think there's just so much that that experience that you could bring to the table um so we might have to do this again sometime but i really appreciate your time your wisdom your experience uh, that you've come on here so just for just a, one last thing is is for people listening like if they really want to chat with you, what should they do and how can they get, you know, how can they get your interest? That's pretty challenging. I'm pretty insular. I, I, I'm like literally am in my bunker in the middle of nowhere. That's water access only so the <laughs> zombies can't get me. Uh, I don't answer my LinkedIn mail. Uh, I have filters on my email. There's just so much noise out there. Uh, everybody wants to come chit chat about their great idea or their great thing, or, um, it's real challenging. Like, like honestly, the only way to do it is, is through somebody like somebody needs to tell me that you are truly have something exceptional that I want to see and talk about. Um, otherwise you're not going to get through to me. And, 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 you know, guys like Ray are good examples of that. Like, if Ray says, hey, Jason, you really should talk to this guy, then I look him square in the eye and say, I will, Ray. But if he is a waste of my time, boy, you're going to get it. <laughs> and, uh, so so you, you better be sure. If your question for me is, will I write you a check? The answer is no. No, I won't. There's, there's almost zero chance I'll write you a check. I do invest. I do, uh, you know, get in with entrepreneurs, but it's, it's rare and exceptional. Um, the odds of rando like solo and uh, you know, and, and again, if, if I've, I've just done so many of those meetings and calls where people just want to tell me about their great business idea. Cause they want to brag about uh, how great they think it is. And if I don't agree with them, then I'm wrong. It's like, okay, well then that's fine. I wasted my time, wasted your time. It's, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. No, for sure. Hey, like I said, again, really appreciate your time and uh, we'll be back another time and, and we'll take it from there. Thank sure. Much. All right, thanks guys. Thanks for letting me blather on. I hope there are some valuable tidbits in there with anything. Uh, listen to everything I say, take a grain of salt and, and ignore most of it. But if you can find one or two tiny little tidbits in there that ring true to you and take those and, and, and use them, then my time here was well spent. Awesome. Appreciate it. Take care. All right. Thanks, guys.